Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. Before I uh, introduce our distinguished speaker, I would like to begin with a short prayer. It's an abridged version of Thomas Merton's prayer for peace, which he wrote in response to a request from Connecticut Congressman Frank Kowalski. The prayer was read before the House of Representatives on April 18, 1962, and entered officially into the congressional record. Almighty and merciful God, creator and ruler of the universe, whose designs are without blemish, whose compassion for our errors is inexhaustible. In your will is our peace. Open our eyes, dissipate our confusions, teach us to understand ourselves and our adversary. Let us never forget that sins against the law of love are punishable by loss of faith. And those without faith stop at no crime to achieve their ends. Help us to be masters of the weapons that threaten to master us. Help us to use our science for peace and plenty, not for war and destruction. Save us from the compulsion to follow our adversaries in all that we most hate confirming them in their hatred and suspicion of us. Grant light, grant strength and patience to all who work for peace. Amen. And now I'd like to introduce today's speaker, Jim Forrest. He is someone who has devoted his whole life to working for peace and reconciliation. This pursuit brought him into contact with some of the most influential peacemakers of the 20th century, Dorothy Day, Dan Berrigan, Thich Nhat Hanh, and of course, Thomas Merton. You can read about Jim's deep felt convictions and remarkably eventful life in his memoir, Writing Straight with Crooked Lines, which was published by Orbis Books in 2020. Since 1977, Jim and his wife, Nancy, have made their home in the Netherlands, where it is now the middle of the night. When I contacted Jim about giving a talk, he said, there was a stage in my life when I could speak more or less intelligibly in the small hours of the morning, but that period is long past. He agreed, however, to pre-record a presentation, which he did with the assistance of Peter, Peter Cunningham of the Burdenant Center. So our format today will be a little different from previous Tuesdays with Merton. We will play the recording of Jim's talk, and then in place of the usual Q&A with the speaker, we will have three ITMS members give a short response. I'll introduce them after the talk. And now it is my pleasure to present to you Jim Forrest speaking on An Army That Sheds No Blood, Thomas Merton's Response to War. Good afternoon. It's uh, a privilege to be part of this community, this Tuesday community. 
that has in common a special interest in Thomas Merton. Today I want to talk about Thomas Merton and war. But I should say beforehand that I apologize for my voice. I have Parkinson's. And one of the side effects of Parkinson's is that it, it has some impact on your voice. And I ask you to be patient with mine. One of Thomas Merton's lesser known publications is a small booklet hand printed in Verona, Italy, 1962, and issued by New Directions. Clement of Alexandria, selections from the Protrepticos. There were just 750 copies that came off the press. It's long out of print, but search and you will find used copies at an attractive price. Now, next slide. The Clement booklet appeared just two years after publication of a related book, The Wisdom of the Desert, Merton's collection of stories and sayings from the initiators of Christian monasticism, the monks who from the fourth century onward populated the wastelands of the Eastern Mediterranean. Both books reveal Merton's attraction to the early church and its writers. Merton was among the earliest. He was born in Athens around 150 AD at the end of the apostolic age. He, he later made his home in Alexandria, the most cosmopolitan city of that period where he became a renowned Christian teacher and apologist, and later came to be regarded as one of the fathers of the church, that community of respected theologians of, er of the early centuries, who were not only scholars, but articulate mystics. There's an icon of Clem of Alexandria that I found in preparation for this talk. Merton found in Clement a kindred soul, one of the fathers I like best, with whom I feel the closest affinity, as he records in a journal entry made in the summer of 1961. The word Merton uses, uses most frequently in regard to Clement is serene. The serene interior light Clement's writings reminded Merton of the Gospel of St. John and also the Pauline epistles. The light which burned clearly in the souls of martyrs, kindled by the agape of the primitive church, as Merton wrote. Merton sees Clement as someone who fully penetrates the mystery of the risen Christ a victory over death, over sin, over the confusions and dissension of the world with its raging cruelty and its futile concerns, a victory which leads, which leads not to contempt of man and of the world, but on the contrary, to a true, pure, serene love filled with compassion, able to save for Christ all that is good, all that is noble in man, in society, in philosophy. 
in humanistic culture. And Clement wrote his, these serene words, as, as Clement wrote these serene words, Merton points out, he was doing so not in the desert, but in the city amid its crowds. In presenting the case for Christ to his well-educated pagan contemporaries, Clement drew from various wells, not only from the gospels, Paul's letters and other Christian writings, but also from the book of the Greek books of the Greek philosophers, especially Plato. As Merton writes, Clement was not a fanatic, but a man of unlimited comprehension and compassion, who didn't fear to seek elements, didn't fear to seek elements of truth wherever they could be found. For the truth, he said, is one. The full expression is to be found most perfectly in the divine logos, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Next slide. Clement's theology, Merton stresses, is a theology of light, the nature of which is to banish darkness. But Merton is, what Clement is not, Merton adds, Clement is not a Christian publicist, an ad man with a bag full of spiritual slogans or a salesman representing a particular nation or culture, nor is he a self-promoter using the Christian religion to draw attention to himself. Clement sees himself a Christian philosopher and educator as having a, a vocation to introduce others to the true teacher, the logos of God. Merton noted that Clement, even though recognized as one of the church fathers and regarded as a saint in some church calendars, has been, at least for Western Christians, a somewhat controversial figure. At the beginning of the 17th century, well over a thousand years after Clement died, Clement, Clement's name was removed from the Roman martyrology by Pope Clement VIII an act later endorsed by Pope Benedict XIV on the grounds that too little was known of Clement's life, which in fact is true of, of nearly all the saints of the early church. For Merton himself, no stranger to controversy, Clement's being half, and half in, half out of the calendar of the saints was perhaps an attraction. Like Groucho Marx, Merton was nervous about belonging to any club that would have him as a member. But the real attraction for Merton was the purity of Clement's apologetics. Clement's writings, said Merton, were a great treasury of authentic and profoundly Christian thought, whose culture, urbanity, simplicity, faith, and joy welcomed all comers the School of Christian Philosophy. Here's a, an icon of the face of Jesus. So change the slide, yeah. The whole moral philosophy of Clement, Merton writes, 
can be summed up by his conviction that Christ is the true master, the one who guides his disciples in every aspect of Christian life. Without the light of Christ, Martin continues, we human beings are little more than fowl being fattened in the dark with a butcher's knife. While in Christ, everything is significant. Everything comes to life, even the most simple and ordinary tasks requires a spiritual and supernatural, acquires a spiritual and supernatural dimension. It's hard to think of anyone about whom Merton ever wrote in more glowing terms. His little book about Clement was a modest effort to make this all but forgotten name better known to readers of our own time, nearly 19 centuries later. Not least appealing to Merton was the purity and challenge of Clement's writings about war and peace. One line is Merton translated, it provides a synopsis. The church Clement declared is an army that sheds no blood. And we see the hand of Christ's blessing. The final page of Merton's translation of excerpts from Clement is headed Soldiers of Peace. The text is brief. Let me read it to you. Now the trumpet sounds with a mighty voice calling the soldiers of the world to arms, announcing a war. And shall not Christ, who has uttered his summons to peace, even to the ends of the earth, summon together his own soldiers of peace? Indeed, O oh man, he has called to arms with his blood and his word, an army that sheds no blood. To these soldiers he has handed over the kingdom of heaven. The trumpet of Christ is his gospel. He, he has sounded it in our ears and we have heard him. Let us be armed for peace, putting on the armor of justice, seizing the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and sharpening the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is how the apostle Paul prepares us peaceably for battle. Such are the arms that make us invulnerable. So armed, let us prepare to fight the evil one. Let us cut through his flaming attack with a blade which is the Logos himself prepared waters of baptism. Let us reply to his goodness by praise and with thanksgiving. Let us honor God with his divine word. While, while thou art yet speaking, here I am. Next slide. The church may once have been an army that sheds no blood got into a lot of trouble in the early centuries for its witness against war. But few would have thought so in the Middle Ages. Even so, Merton's translation didn't lose the bright edge of the original Greek text. Sadly and certainly, there are a great many 
Christians today who give an impressive witness to being part of such an army. It's not a remark many would apply to contemporary Christianity as a whole. For centuries, Christians by the millions have been combatants in, in practically any war one could think of, killing each other when not killing non-Christians, and by and large doing so with the blessing of popes and other leading clergy, if not as happened in the Crusades at their actual summons. Another smile. Now this is Andre Rubioff's face of Christ. I am the way. Merton's vision of peace was similar to that of Clement of Alexandria. He wanted to revive in Christianity, that is in each of us, those strengths which would equip us to become once again part of an army that sheds no blood. Merton himself gave witness to wanting to be such a person well before becoming a monk. One of the many surprises in his autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, is Merton's thorough, thorough recounting of his decision, despite his disgust with Hitler and Nazism, to be a conscientious objector. As he explained, and here we see part of a letter to the draft board that he wrote at the time, God was not asking me to judge all the nations of the world or to elucidate the moral and political motives behind their actions. He was not demanding that I pass some critical decision defining the innocence and guilt of, those, of all those concerned in the war. He was asking me to make a choice that amounted to an act of love for his truth, his goodness, his charity, his gospel. He was asking me to do it to the best of my ability, what I thought Christ would do. After all, Christ did say, whatsoever you have done to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Remarkable words. One very rarely heard anyone saying such things in the modern world, least of all when World War II was underway or in the years that immediately followed, which is precisely when The Seven Story Mountain was published. And their struggle to be accepted in a society whose default setting was anti-Catholic, American Catholics were notable for being more red, white, and blue than many of their neighbors, a people doubly grateful for having found a home in the United States. Not that Merton was being critical of his adopted country, but it wasn't every day a Catholic writer, indeed Christian from any major church, talked about the behavior in wartime, no less than in peacetime, being modeled on Christ's example. Against whom did Christ raise a deadly weapon? No one. How many were killed by Jesus Christ? Not a single one. Christ brought both taught and, and practiced love of enemies. He rescued people from death. Far from killing others, he was renowned for acts of healing. Dying on the cross, he forgave his executioners. Having risen from the dead, he said to his disciples, peace be with you. The next slide. 
image of Christ on the cross. Those who would cut Merton in two, the early Merton, author of the Seven Story Mountain and various books of the late 40s through the 50s, versus the imagined later Merton, author of Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, and all the other books he wrote in the 60s. Such people overlook how much that became major themes in Merton's later writing and work, not only regarding peace, but his rejection of racism and his ability to connect with people other, from other religions, non-Christian re religious traditions, were already clearly expressed in the Seven Story Mountain. There is development, of course, his early parochialism and convert zeal evaporated. His understanding of what, meant, what it meant to be in the world, but not of it, was gradually transformed. Merton had come to baptism not because of Christianity, but because of Christ, the Christ of the martyrs, as he stressed in the Seven Story Mountain, describing his first mystical experience with Christ when he was in Rome at age 18. And here we see a picture of Merton walking in the woods just outside his hermitage. I took that in 1964. A significant part of Merton's conversion in the last two decades of his life was his realization that a monk in his place of relative refuge is sometimes capable of seeing the world with a clarity that eludes those who, who are in the midst of the world. And not just to see what is happening, but to attempt to speak in a way that might prevent disaster. It has to do with the second of the two great commandments, love of neighbor. If you see your neighbor rushing toward a precipice and fail to warn him his death, his death may be more your fault than his. He was blind, you were not. Almost anyone who knows anything about Merton is likely to recall that, that moment of illumination when in 1958, he waited for the light to change, to turn green, a busy intersection in downtown Louisville. In a moment that contained all the time in the world, he saw those around him as bearers of the divine image, as persons loved by God, each of them as dear to God as anyone in any monastery. He knew not one of these strangers by name, but the fate of each of them became a matter of eternal significance. That transfigured moment helps us better understand the final decade of Merton's life. Monsignor William Shannon, the general editor of Merton's correspondence, told me that after that event, Merton's letters, letter writing, took off. It, se it seemed he was writing to just about anyone, anyone in the phone book, from popes to the authors of banned books, from great scholars to high school students, from politicians to people like me who sometimes went to prison for acts of protest. Just three years later in 1961, shortly before his book on Clement was issued, Merton submitted the 
submitted his first article to the Catholic Worker. Its editor, Dorothy Day, was an outspoken pacifist who saw the works of war as being the polar opposite of the works of mercy. It was not in her view a coherent life to feed the hungry one day and drop bombs on them the next. The piece Merton submitted, The Root of War is Fear, was an extended version of a chapter he had finished, just finished writing for a forthcoming book, New Seeds of Contemplation. In it, he observed, it does not even seem to enter our minds that there might be some incongruity in proving and praying to God, the God of peace, the God who told us to love one another as he loved us, who warned us that we who took the sword would perish by the sword. And at the same time, planning to annihilate not thousands, but millions of civilians and soldiers, men and women and children without discrimination. It may make sense for a sick man to pray for health and then take medicine, but I fail to see any sense at all in his praying for health than drinking poison. In several introductory paragraphs written especially for the Catholic worker, Merton saw, quote, war madness as an illness of the mind and spirit that is spreading with a furious and subtle contagion all over the world. No one has to recall that at one, I'm sorry, let me start that again. One has to recall that at the time Merton was writing these observations, there were many Americans, Catholics prominent among them, who seriously repeated such apocalyptic slogans as better red than dead and the only good red is a dead red. Uttering such bumper sticker sentences passed for moral discourse. Just, just a month before Merton's essay was published in The Catholic Worker, that is in October 1961. An essay by a distinguished Jesuit ethicist, Father L.C. McHugh was published in America Magazine, in which the author argued that it was morally unobjectionable to kill your next door neighbor in defense of your private fallout shelter. Meanwhile, advocates of next door, advocates of nuclear war were promoting the benefits of launching a first strike nuclear attack on the Soviet Union, a preemptive war. Some of US nuclear weapon tests were occurring first in Nevada and then after the weapons became too destructive for open air detonation in the United States in the Pacific Ocean. Millions of children in the US uh, school system took part in duck and cover drills to learn how hiding under their desks with their hands over the back of their necks, might save their lives in the event of nuclear attack. The war madness, as he called it, was madness indeed. The world, the world Stanley Kubrick satirized in Dr. Strangelove was the actual world in which we were living. 
There was a poster in my room at the Catholic worker that bore the simple message, get ready to die. Here's Merton's description of the times in that first Catholic worker essay. On all sides, we have people building bomb shelters where in case of nuclear war, they will simply bake slowly instead of burning quickly or being blown out of existence in a flash. And they are prepared to sit in these shelters with machine guns with which to prevent their neighbor from entering. This is a nation, this is a nation which claims to be fighting for religious truth along with freedom and other values of the spirit. Truly, we have entered the post-Christian era and entered it with a vengeance. Whether we are destroyed or whether we survive, the future is awful to contemplate. Merton went on to sketch out a, a vision of how Christians should re respond to the dangers facing us in the post-Hiroshima world. What are we to do? The duty of the Christian in this crisis is to strive with all his power and intelligence, with his faith, his hope in Christ, his love for God and man, to do the one task which God has imposed upon us, in the world today. That task is to work for the total abolition of war. There can be no question that unless war is abolished, the world will remain constantly in a state of madness and desperation in which because of the immense destructive power of modern weapons, the damage, the danger of catastrophe will be imminent, probable at every moment, everywhere. Unless we set ourselves immediately to this task, both as individuals and in our political and religious groups, we tend by our very passivity and fatalism to cooperate with the destructive forces that are leading inexorably toward war. It's a problem of terrifying complexity and magnitude for which the church itself is not fully able to see clear, decisive solutions. Yet she must lead the way on the road to nonviolent settlement of difficulties and toward the gradual abolition of war as a way of settling international or civil disputes. Christians must become active in every possible way, mobilizing all their resources for the fight against war. And you see here a kind of symbol of the 20th century, one of the principal buildings at Auschwitz. His basic ideas, Merton's never wavered. As a writer aware that many people had great respect for his work and that he was one of the relatively few whose voice might make a difference. And also aware that he, he might not be given an extended opportunity to say what was in his mind before his superiors cut off, hit the off switch, he plunged ahead with other writings, including a poem, chant to be used around a site for furnaces. That ends with the commandant of Auschwitz addressing the reader. 
Do not think yourself better because you burn up friends and enemies with long-range missiles without ever seeing what you have done. Merton wasn't finished with, uh, with Eichmann or his like, or the implications of the death machine such bureaucrats served in raids on the unspeakable, noting that psychiatrists had found Eichmann perfectly sane, Merton had this to say. And here we see a picture of Adolf Eichmann. The sanity of Eichmann is disturbing. We acquaint sanity with a sense of justice, with, with humaneness, with prudence, with the capacity to love and understand other people. We rely on the sane people of the world to preserve it from barbarism, madness, destruction. And now it begins to dawn on us that it is precisely the sane ones who are the most dangerous. It is the sane ones, the well-adapted ones, who can, without qualms, without nausea, aim the missiles, press the buttons that will initiate the great festival of destruction that they, the sane ones, have prepared. No one suspects the sane, and the sane ones will have perfectly good reasons, logical, well-adjusted reasons for firing the shot. They will be obeying sane orders that have come down sanely, chain of command. Merton's peace writings provoked a great deal of criticism. Given the climate of the time, it's not surprising that some, many of them Catholics, saw him as having become a communist dupe, frequently used phrase in those days. A monk, it was said, should write about prayer and meditation. The rosary, fasting, not about such issues as war. What does Thomas Merton think? Who does Thomas Merton think he is? What happened to the author of the Seven Story Mountain? It was quite a storm and achieved its goal. Merton, having been accused of writing for a communist controlled publication, that is, the Catholic Worker, was silenced. Merton's abbot general, Dominic Gabriel Sorte, a Frenchman who in many ways was an outstanding and courageous individual decided to unplug the microphone. Merton had just finished writing a full-length book piece in the post-Christian era when he received a letter from Dom Gabriel ordering him to not to continue publishing articles on war. Only six months had passed since publication of Merton's first peace essay in the Catholic work. Here we see a copy of the mimeographed edition of the piece in the post-Christian era. As the focus of these reflections is Merton's vision of peace, not his troubles in trying to communicate that vision. I'm not going to relate all that followed, it's another story. To sum it up, Merton obeyed the order in the sense that peace in the post-Christian era was not published in book form in his lifetime. But Merton's abbot, Dom James Fox, made it possible for peace in the post-Christian era 
as well as a collection of Merton's letters, Cold War Letters, both to be published by the monastery in a mimeographed, in a mimeographed editions that were quick, privately circulated, widely read, and proved influential. Tom Jane's decided such private circulated books were not a violation of the abbot's general's order. Were not, so long as they were not books, were not sold commercially on the open market. On the inside cover of both mimeographed books was the notation strictly confidential, not for publication. Using various pen names, Merton also continued to write and publish shorter pieces on war and peace, using such bylines as Benedict Monk. But who, but who else but Thomas Merton could have written something signed Marco J. Frisbee? Eventually, after Dom Gabriel's death in 1963, quite a lot of what Merton wanted to say about peace to people whose only access to his writings was via bookstores, was published in such volumes as Seeds of Destruction, Raids on the Unspeakable, and Faith and Violence. It's noteworthy that the not quite silenced Merton did all of this without abandoning his vocation or his religious order or publicly denouncing his abbot general his actions reflected his conviction that he would do, every, very, would do very little good for peace in the world if it was at the cost of scandalizing and alienating his own community. Throughout the next several difficult years, what Merton was able to do without interruption in his own name and without heavy burden of censorship was to carry on a great deal of significant correspondence people like Dorothy Day, Daniel Berrigan, Tom Cornell and myself, others deeply engaged in efforts to prevent war or reduce conflict. These were never letters on the how are you, I am fine variety. Full text of nearly all of them is available in the hidden ground of love and now exists in an abbreviated form in a section of the one-volume anthology, Thomas Burton, Life and Letters. Meanwhile, Orbis Brooks, has, or, Orbis Brooks has brought out trade editions, both Cold War Letters and Peace in the Post-Christian Era, as well as my own book, The, the Root of War is Fear, Thomas Merton's Advice to Peacemakers. And here we see the cover of uh, The Root of War is Fear. Correspondence is important work. Even was so admired Merton's, Merton the letter writer that he once advised Merton to give up writing books altogether in order to have more time for correspondence. Letters matter. Certainly Merton's did. I can recite by heart parts of certain letters Merton sent to me. Through his letters, Merton played the role of spiritual father to many people deeply engaged in the world. In my own case, I don't know how I would have gotten through the nightmarish time, that nightmarish time without, without those letters. Peace work is not always or even often peaceful. 
peace groups attract all sorts of people. The peace activist is at, is at least as subject to passions and vanities as anyone else. There are countless opportunities for self-righteousness, self-pity, arrogance, ambition, neglect of relationships and despair. Religiously motivated peace activists can come to decide that the church is not worthy of his or her presence. Ideology can take the place of spiritual life and faith, attending the liturgy, participating in Eucharistic life, praying the rosary, prayer of any kind, going to confession, fasting, all such things can seem as unimportant or even a waste of time. In such a context, more than most others, the peacemaker is desperately in need of the kind of patient guidance I was fortunate enough to receive from Merton, who was motivated by a genuine vision of peace, not simply driven by anger at the makers of war. The next slide, you see my brother-in-law holding my sister's hands as she dies. One of Merton's main stresses was to acquire a deeper, deeper compassion. Without compassion, he pointed out, protesters tend to become more and more centered in anger and far from contributing to anyone's conversion, can actually become obstacles to changing the attitude of others. As Merton put it in one of his early letters to me, we have to have a deep, patient compassion for the fears of others, of men, for the fears and irrational mania of those who hate and condemn us. These are, after all, the ordinary people, the ones who don't want war, the ones who get it in the neck, the ones who really want to build a decent new world in which there will be no war or starvation. And I think of another letter that came to mean a great deal to me, it went to a deeper level from, from compassion to love. This, this one was addressed to Dorothy Day. He wrote to Dorothy, persons are not known by intellect alone, not by principles alone, but only by love. It's when we love the other, the enemy, that we obtain from God the key to our understanding of who he is and who we are. It is only this realization can open to us the real nature of our duty and of right action. Not least important to me was the letter I received at a time when I was feeling that the work we were doing was having no positive effect whatsoever. Here is a brief extract from his response. This was written in 1966. Do not depend on the hope of results. When you're doing the sort of work you have taken on, essentially an apostolic work, you may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no result at all, if not perhaps results opposite to what you 
expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. And there too, a great deal has to be gone through as gradually you struggle less and less for an idea and more and more for specific people. The range tends to narrow down, but it gets much more real. In the end, it is the reality of personal relationships that saves everything. These letters are really about stages of conversion. Merton won his original renown for a book about conversion. It's hardly surprising that he realized that for all of us, conversion is ultimately our only hope to become a peaceful person, to live in a way that contributes to peace, to live in a way that helps save life rather than in a way that contributes to the killing of others, to live in such a way that others may decide to live differently. That is an extraordinary achievement. Indeed, it is never fully achieved. It's an ongoing process as all conversion is. Along the way, we make mistakes, some of them serious, repentance, confession, reconciliation. Many fresh starts are needed. This was true in the early church and remains true in our own time. All armies are built one by one. This is especially true of the army that sheds no blood. Though his own commitment was obvious, it's striking that Merton never demanded that anyone, Christian or otherwise, was obliged to join the army that sheds no blood. We'll never find him insisting that a Christian is duty bound to be a conscientious objector. He had great sympathy for those who felt they had no alternative, but violence, no viable nonviolent alternative they could envision that would lead them to take part in nonviolent struggle. Also, with his aversion to labels, it's hardly surprising that he avoided calling himself a pacifist. Yet again and again, Martin made clear his conviction, echoing Clement of Alexandria, that the highest form of Christian discipleship presupposed the renunciation of violence. One last slide here. This is how he put it in an important passage included in the, in the world, the Christian world crisis. One of the essays in his book, Seeds of Destruction. I'll finish with it. The Christian does not need to fight. And indeed it is better that he should not fight. For insofar as he imitates the Lord, his Lord and Master, he proclaims that the Messianic kingdom has come and bears witness to the presence of the Kyrios Pantocrator, that is, Lord of creation, in mystery, even in the midst of the conflicts and turmoil of the world. Merton's good friend, Clement of Alexandria, 
could have written the same words. I wish I could be present for this when this conversation is on your screens. I think it'll be the middle of the night for me. But I'll get to listen to you and your conversation later on. God bless. I want to thank Jim Forrest for the witness of his words and in particular for the witness of his life and for his presentation this evening, including his deeply personal reflections on the challenges of being a peacemaker. And now we will hear from our three respondents. Each will speak for about five minutes. Afterwards, there may be a little time to ask questions to them about their responses. Of course, they can't respond on behalf of Jim Forrest. So please post your questions in the chat and send them to Peter Cunningham, who will forward them to our moderator, Alan Colt. So our first respondent is Anthony Nuncio. Anthony is a member of the Chicago chapter of ITMS and has presented at ITMS general meetings in 2019 and 2021. He, his wife, and their two cats live in the suburbs of Chicago. Anthony. Thank you, Teresa. Before beginning my response to Jim's excellent talk, I would like to thank the organizers of the Tuesday with Merton series, the Catholic Theological Union and the International Thomas Merton Society for curating many important talks to Merton's continued importance and relevance for contemporary society. I would also like to thank Teresa for reaching out to me several months ago to serve as a respondent and I'm humbled to be here this evening. As I listened to and read Jim's talk this evening, I can't help but be drawn to Merton's understanding of Clement of Alexandria as a serene witness to the truth of Christ. Both Clement and Merton can be seen to embody a serene spirit in some capacity. A cursory reading of both men's lives and understandings of the life, witness, and sacrifice of Christ might come as a bit of a surprise to those who do not know their names. As Jim alludes to, Clement is seldom known to, to likely many Catholics and or other Christians because he has been lost to our collective history. For Merton, I don't think it would be much of a stretch to say that his light has been slightly diminished in some capacity in the decades following his sudden death. One similarity that I see and think deserves further reflection this evening is the similarity of the signs of the times in which both men lived. Historically speaking, it is true to say that centuries elapsed between the lives of Clement and Merton. However, to borrow a phrase from Henri du Lebac's theology, the paradoxes of Christian faith remind us that our experiences of faith do not always fit easily and strictly linear understandings of time. We see this most prominently in our respective exegeses of scripture, the liturgical calendar. For example, we as Catholics claim that Christ is born and rises from the dead every calendar year, and that Christ is also physically present to us in the holy sacrifice of the mass and during Eucharistic adoration. With this being said, both Clement and Merton lived in times that can be understood as apocalyptic. Clement lived in the first few decades following the death of Christ and several centuries before Constantine 
was baptized on his deathbed. Clement became a follower of Christ during the infancy of the early church and lived during what would have likely been the beginnings of the persecution of members of this early church. While Merton lived in the mid-20th century, his times are more familiar to us and were certainly apocalyptic. Merton lived through the Second World War and saw the beginnings of the nuclear age and Vietnam War. He also lived during decades of civil unrest marked by the civil rights movement, sexual revolution, and the beginnings of the contemporary pro-life movement. Before continuing, it's important to define exactly what I mean when I say that Clement and Merton lived in apocalyptic times. Rather than a more contemporary and post-biblical understanding of the apocalypse as marked by colossal destruction, while important, I think it's, it's worth returning to the original Greek definition that tells us that the apocalypse is an uncovering of a larger knowledge. The times of Clement and Merton, while marked by violence and challenges to the larger quo status quos of their respective societies, do a service to helping uncover the continuous nature of attempting to live as Christians in a quote-unquote post-Christian world. If we take Merton's reading of Clement's understanding of the church as an army that sheds no blood seriously, it behooves us to prayerfully respect on the understanding that Christians are, in the words of St. Augustine of Hippo, residents of both the city of God and the earthly city. Clement and Merton challenge us more seriously to understand the difficulties that Christ calls us to when we become an army built on peace, prayer, and justice towards all. This paradoxical witness reminds me of the life of Blessed Franz Jägerstadter, an Austrian Catholic martyr in one of his early writings during the Second World War. Jägerstadter reminds us that his, Clement, and Merton's times made people feel like, quote, a great stream has engulfed us. End quote. This stream, whether that of persecution, warfare, various social injustices, can overwhelm us, drag us under, and leave us gasping for breath. It disorients us and throws us around, causing us to lose our bearings and grasping for the past. In closing, rather than allowing ourselves to be swept away on this current forever, I think Clement, Merton, and Jaeger-Stadter remind us that the church by its very nature exists as community. We hold each other close, envelop one another in prayer, and walk together through our lives in the hope of being resurrected. This does not mean we abandon hope given to the violence of the streams around us or withstand our attempts to return to God's mercy and live truly. Rather, as Jaeger-Stadter says in the few months preceding his martyrdom, as the rising sun brings on the day, so God sends the Redeemer as the light of the world. Christ will indeed come again, and we, as his army of peace, must keep our eyes on the horizon as we continue the long trek towards eternal peace and justice. Thank you. Um, our next respondent is Jim Thornton. Jim is a graduate of Baldwin-Wallace University and currently serves as the senior pastor of Grace Community Church in Grafton, Ohio. Jim? Hello, um, and I just wanted to uh, second uh, all of Anthony's thanks. Uh, thanks for the invite. Thanks to the organizers. Uh, really excited to be able to participate in this event. Um, after uh, listening to Jim's talk, I, I had some questions. Um, I wasn't familiar with him or his background prior. And, and our, so I 
ended up reaching out to him and we had a conversation. And in that conversation, he said a phrase that really struck me. And it was, we need to focus on sanctity instead of strategy. And um, I asked him if he could expound on that just a little bit more. And he said, okay, we'll get back to that. And he finished his thought, which then led to another thought, which then led to another strain of the conversation. And we never got back uh, to that phrase. And that phrase has been rattling around in my head ever since. And as somebody who wants to be on the front lines of the nonviolent movement, of the peace movement, um, constantly trying to think of a strategy. What is the strategy for peace? And recognizing that it's sanctity. And I'm really glad that Jim touched on uh, Merton's epiphany at Fourth and Walnut because therein lies the, the goal. <laughs> to have that moment, to have that realization that we love all of these people, that we are theirs and that they are ours. And we are all members of the same human race in which God himself became incarnate as. And as if the, the sorrows and the stupidities of this life, could it be a burden on us now that we realize what we all are. And there's no way of walking around telling everyone that they're shining like the sun. And there's where I disagree with Merton because the route to becoming an army that sheds no blood is to do exactly that, to spend every moment of our day walking around, letting people know that they shine like the sun. Whether they voted for Biden or they voted for Trump, they shine like the sun. Whether they are bombed by Israel or they bomb Israel, they shine like the sun. All of us may, as, may be as misguided as we may be, we shine like the sun and we're all members of the same race. And so we can come up with all the strategies we want to, but until we recognize the sanctity, the sacredness of the life of the person that you don't like, the person that's walking around shining like the sun, we're gonna constantly be revolving around the same circle of war, leading to war, leading to war, leading to war. When I talk about nonviolence, people will always bring up World War II. And my response is simple. If we don't have World War I, we don't have World War II. If we don't invade Iraq in 1991, we don't have 9-11. If we don't have 9-11, we don't have the Operation Iraqi Freedom. War only leads to more war. The only way to find peace is to choose peace and to recognize the sanctity of anybody and everybody, no matter what they believe or what they hold to be true, it may be misguided. And there are a lot of people in our world that are very misguided, but they shine like the sun and we're all members of that same race. And so I, I disagree with Merton where he says, there's no way of telling them so. And I'm devoted to spending every day of my life to letting everybody I encounter know that they shine like the sun. And it has built relationships. Jim talked about his letter from Merton and the, the, the importance of relationships. And one of my dearest professors and mentors, Alan Colt, would always talk about social capital and genuine relationships are more valuable than money. And until we recognize the need for those relationships to be genuine and to be true and to be focused on the fact that we are all members of this crazy human race, and that there's no reason for us to continue to live in the dualities of our mind that keep us separated, keep us divided, and keep us 
separated based on political ideology, based upon race, based upon where we fall on imaginary lines drawn on a map. We are all one and we are all created in the image of the Father and we all exist in the same planet that he created and crafted in his image for us. And um, it's just a joy to be alive and it's a joy to be having a conversation about the most important thing we can be talking about and that's how we can all be members of an army that sheds no blood. And that is my goal. And I'm, I, I know I'm not the first to enlist in that army, um, but I'm glad to have enlisted in that army today. And I look forward to serving in that army and continuing to, to walk this, this road of peace, reconciliation, and just let everybody know you shine like the sun. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jim. Um... When Jim writes you a note, uh, he doesn't end it, yours truly, your best wishes, or sincerely, he says, you shine like the sun. And that's beautiful, Jim, thanks. Um, finally, we're going to have as our last respondent, Dr. Julianne Wallace. She's a professor in Catholic higher education, a professional, I should say. And she was the site coordinator for the ITMS conference at St. Bonaventure University in 2017. She's on sabbatical this summer, enjoying time for rest, reflection, and rejuvenation. Julianne. Thanks, Teresa, and thanks, everybody. <laughs> to save time, I won't go through the list, um, but, but I would say, Jim, that's a, uh, Jim and Anthony, that's a tough act to follow. Um, I, I currently live in Reading, Pennsylvania, and this past weekend, um, as I was out running errands, I'm about to take a trip, so I was trying to tie everything up, get everything done that I needed to my errands were constantly interrupted by huge planes flying overhead, loud, thunderous planes. And what was happening was the annual World War II Memorial out at the Reading Airport. This is a normal thing, living in Reading five years now. Um, it's just something that happens. And if you go to the website, you'll see this is really a celebration of the war. Um, there are live bands, there's things to sell, you can ride on the planes. And these big planes, you know, are called like Super Fortress and Warhawk and they're flying overhead. And as I'm out running errands, I'm pretty annoyed by all of this. Everybody's so excited and I feel very annoyed. And I get into my car after running into Target and thought, why am I so annoyed by this? This is a, an important moment in our history. Why am I so annoyed? And after like 30 seconds of reflection, uh, I thought it's because when I see those planes, I don't think about the pride uh, of winning, but I think about the thousands of people who died at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the tragedy that nuclear armament is. And I'll say that I don't mean to bemoan those people who enlist, those people who died in World War II, those veterans. My, my own grandfather flew one of those planes that was annoying the heck out of me. He was probably rolling over in his grave being like, I can't believe my granddaughter is thinking this. And my uncle um, died flying, test flying F-16s in the early 90s. So my own heritage, my own lineage is built into this, this war machine. It's part of who I am. So taking this into mind, I'm also a procrastinator. So I didn't quite listen to Jim's talk until Saturday night. I finally sat down. 
I listened to it. I spent a couple of days listening and some things uh, popped out in my mind. I have three things and, and they, they won't take long, I promise. The first was Merton's voice coming into my mind at three different points that Jim remind us, reminded us of. First in Seven Story Mountain, where, where Merton asks us to not judge. God is not asking us to judge our enemies or those different from us. And then Merton comes in one of the letters and says, we have to have a deep compassion for the fears of men. And then something Jim highlighted previously that this work of peace, we cannot depend on results. Instead, we have to depend on personal relationships. And as I listened to that on Saturday night, you know, I hit myself in the head and I'm like, well, why am I so annoyed? What I need is don't judge, have a little compassion and love and work on my personal relationships. So I think, you know, the, the sanctity that Jim talked about, the strategy is this non-judgmental attitude, this deep compassion. Another thing that occurred to me is how easy war is. And Jim talked a little bit about this war begets war begets war, right? A lot of times it's much easier for us to be in a state of war than to choose a pattern of peace. And it's challenging to work for peace. But if you go back to that strategy of sanctity, that doesn't seem like a great challenge. It just takes a little extra effort and it takes us relinquishing our own power, our own privilege, facing our own fears. A lot of us are doing this work right now with racial reconciliation. I also think about this um, a couple of weeks ago when the 10-day when the war was happening, when the, the latest skirmish between Israel and Palestine was happening. It's something I've never really understood. You know, you hear it on the news and it's just like, oh, it's happening again. But I was taking a 12 hour road drive. So I committed myself in those 12 hours to listen to some podcasts and figure out, I was gonna figure out what the deal was <laughs> and uh, how naive of that, of that to me. But what I learned from that was that the, the, the skirmish or the, the violence is more about power and fear. And what would it look like to be these agents of an army that shed no blood in this conflict? And that leads me to my final, my final little nugget for you all this evening. Forrest does this great job of spanning the time of nonviolence, right? He begins with Clement, links it to Merton, and then takes us back to, to the true uh, nonviolent figure, Jesus. I left thinking, who is that person in our time? Who are the voices? Who are the agents in that army that sheds no blood? Because I think we forget these voices. And if we don't forget these voices, maybe we're not hearing them because we're in our own little Tuesdays with Merton echo chamber <laughs> and we may all be on the same page, but how are we out in the world telling others we're shining like the sun, like, like Jim has reminded us so eloquently. So this pursuit of nonviolence spans the time from Jesus to Clement to Merton to us. Who will be next as we discover what, our, what God's will is for us? 
And as we discover that peace in our own hearts, how will we become those agents, those soldiers in that army that sheds no blood? Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Anthony, Jim, and Julianne. Um, now we're going to go to questions uh, from our listeners. And I think if it would be possible, if we could have our three panelists uh, unmuted and Ellen as well, then I think the questioning can go a little more smoothly, okay? There we go. Thank you. The three of you were wonderful. I was thinking um, we would love to have Jim Forrest with us, but actually I'm rather glad he spoke from Netherlands and went to bed. So we got the three of you. Uh, this is a little different format. I'm very much aware of the time and we can't go along. So we have a few questions that I'm going to say we'll not get to. I'm going to ask one question and would like each one of the three of you to speak to it. And then we'll swing it back to Teresa to wrap things up. So um, there's no doubt, but what the three of you are younger than most of us on the call tonight, that was purposeful. And so I would like to ask you, and I'm sure other folks would love to hear, how does Merton speak to people of your generation? And each one of you can go, let's, let's limit it to a minute or, or not too much more, and then we'll be finishing up. How does Merton speak to people of your generation? Well, I'll go first. <laughs> um, for me, whenever I pick up Merton, you know, whether it's day after day or maybe I've taken a break, I could pick it up. And it is as if he is sitting right beside me speaking to exactly what I need to hear. And I think that is because Merton's voice is prophetic and it is timeless. And it's going to be heard and understood by people in many different contexts, many different ages. I think our task, you know, as the younger generation, I'm older than I look, um, is to highlight that in my, and you know, in my work with students, highlighting these prophetic words from Merton and all the other prophetic voices that he lived along with, like Dorothy Day, like Dan Berrigan. And I think that's, for me, it's that he's, he really is timeless and doesn't matter what situation I am in, I can pick it up and I'm like, well, how did Merton know? This is exactly what I needed to hear tonight. Oh, he was right all the time. <laughs> yeah, I think um, Merton just had a very unique way of distilling what was happening in his time to a way that is relevant for any time. And so how does he speak to our generation? It's the same way he speaks to any generation in their own language. Because when I read Merton, I read him in my own language. And, and like Julianne said, he's saying exactly what I needed to hear. And there are times where I've had to divorce Merton. I, I, I need to get him out of my head. I don't wanna hear from him for a while. And then when I get into a really tight spot, it's like, I look on my shelf and his books are glowing. And it's just like, which one do I pick? And then you pick one and it, and it just speaks to that, that moment. And so I think 
one thing, the other thing that, that she mentioned was the importance of us just making sure that other people in our generation hear these words. And that's why, you know, as a pastor, there is very rarely, and I'm a Protestant pastor, and very rarely do I have a sermon where I don't mention Thomas Merton. Um, I, I, I most, I barely share anything on social media, but usually what I share on social media is a Merton quote or something about Merton um, because what he says is so timeless and it is so applicable to everything we're dealing with today. Um, there are a lot of times where I wonder what Merton would say if he was living today. And it's like, well, he actually, or he is speaking like he is living today because the issues haven't changed. We're still dealing with the exact same issues we were dealing with when he was writing. Sexism, racism, war, poverty, all the things that he wrote about. We're still dealing, they haven't gone anywhere. <laughs> Um, so yeah, just the, the, the timelessness that Julian talked about is, is, you know, why he will always be relevant as long as we keep his legacy alive and making sure people hear that name and hear his words. Yeah, I would, I would second everything that my fellow co-panelists have said. Um, the, the two things that I would add that has always stood out to me about Merton is I really view him as a really timely and to use Jim's word, timeless representation as a member of the cloud of witnesses that the New Testament calls us to, um, that Merton certainly fits within the larger schema of, you know, to use a more Catholic word, saints of our, you know, history of the church. Um, you know, despite living in his own times, his voice stretches across generations. Um, but one other thing that I think would be helpful for Merton is um, I, th I think he would probably be the first one to say um, to A, not take him too seriously, but B, to also read him, you know, with a grain of salt as well. You know, there's certainly limits to Merton's knowledge. Um, you know, we see him as a voice of his time. And I know um, Dan Haran and others um, who have read him more, you know, often point out some of his usage of gendered language and, you know, I also have spoken um, about some of his limits of the understanding of violence and religion and um, in our sinful world, sometimes that violence might be an answer even if we don't want it to be. Um, but I think that's something that really helps engage with our uh, current generation. And, and I know, especially um, for people my age and younger who crave authenticity, um, one thing I can easily say about Merton is that he was his authentic self whether I always agree with him, whether I always think he's spot on, it's beside the point. I can go to Merton and know exactly who he is because he was not afraid to be himself. Thank you to the three of you. Um, you've given us a new way of, of doing the Tuesday with Mertens and it's been a delight. I wish we had more time to ask questions and to field some of the questions that have come in, but um, Teresa, I'm gonna, send it back to you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ellen, for your wonderful question and uh, panelists for your illuminating responses. It's so interesting to hear from you, uh, not just what you thought about Jim Forrest's talk, but your own um, personal responses to Merton and about Merton. Um, I want to thank uh, Peter Cunningham and the Bernadin Center at Theologi Catholic Theological Union for providing technical support 
for to, uh, this evening's meeting, but also uh, for uh, helping um, uh, assisting Jim Forrest with uh, the recording. Peter was assisted this evening by Franciscan Father Dan Horan, who's a theologian at CTU, an ITMS board member, and also um, one of the planners for these sessions, along with um, Alan Kolp and myself. Uh, I want to also um, let you know that the person who is responsible for putting these um, wonderful sessions on the YouTube is Bob Grip. Uh, he posts the videos, uh, the webinars on YouTube, and Mark Mead makes them available as podcasts. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars at merton.org slash ITMS. There you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. If you are not already a member, I encourage you to consider joining. Registration is now open for the July 13th webinar, which will feature Professor Lynn Shabo speaking on Poetry as Spiritual Direction with Thomas Merton and Denise Levertov. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you in July.